I actually really love that I'm coming up off the back of that last worship song um, where you just sung about being led into a victory because that's actually, I didn't realize that was the final song um, and that's actually exactly what I'm preaching on this morning. And so I'd love to just quickly pray before I start. We all know I need prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, for what a privilege it is to be able to speak and encourage your people. I thank you, God, that there is a weight that comes along with this. And I pray, God, that you will empty me now of myself, God, that my words will be your words uh, and that whatever is spoken from this pulpit, God, will be honoring to you. Um, And we just thank you for that. We pray that uh, everyone will walk away encouraged from your word today. In Jesus' name we all say. Amen. All right. Uh, Well, if you have been here at Elam Papakoto for longer than 30 seconds, chances are you have probably been already graced by the beautiful smile of Debbie Borman. Debbie, where are you? Give us a wave. Give us a wave, Debbie. Uh, She is an incredible mother of the faith here at our campus. I really look up to her. And earlier this year, she was actually telling me an incredible story of when God performed a miracle in her world. I messaged her earlier and I said, hey, Debbie, can I, can I retell your story? Uh, and she was like, you know what, Shemaine, you can as long as you don't get me up to tell it. And so here we go. Um, back in South Africa around 20 years ago, uh, Debbie and her husband, Mark, uh, before they moved to New Zealand, they had a lovely couple that were visiting them for the weekend. Um, At this point in time, Debbie said that she was a stay-at-home mum and that finances were obviously then pretty rough uh, because there were three of them and they were on one income. Um, This might be a situation that many of us are familiar with. It might be a situation that considering the current circumstances around COVID that many of us may have ended up in right now. Um, Now, Debbie knew she only had uh, this particular weekend, sorry, a a travelling prophet um, who was a friend of theirs had been in town. And so she felt a prompting from God to then invite this prophet and his girlfriend over for dinner. Knowing full well they were on a tight budget, she then said, oh God, how exactly am I expected to feed all of these mouths? There are four of us already and the budget is tight. But then she said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step out in faith. So then she invited him over. She extended the invite. Um, And as it turns out, the prophet had actually that same day proposed to his girlfriend, his now fiance, um, and then also invited a mutual friend of theirs over to dinner. So the growing number from four that they were struggling to feed the mouths of uh, then hit seven at this point. Debbie then had a look in her fridge and she said, okay, what I've got to deal with is 500 grams of mince. 500 grams of mince. What can we do for dinner? 500 grams of mince. That is half a kg, and we all know that that can't feed seven people. That can probably stretch maybe to feed four, probably more three, or if you're a part of a Fijian family like mine, maybe just one. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Sorry to throw you under the bus there, Dad. Debbie recently explained to me that actually at the time, uh, they were in the middle of what she refers to as a miracle season. She said that God had been so good to them that he was answering so many unbelievable prayers in inexplainable ways. And so she said, you know what, God? All right, let's do this. So she started cooking. At that point, the mince just looked like a normal pot of mince. But then she said she started praying and she just said, God, can you multiply this? Can you multiply this like you did in the Bible with that little boy when he brought you his two fish and his five loaves? You multiplied it then and I believe you can multiply it now because I've seen what you're doing in my world. And so she just prayed and she prayed and she prayed. And what she actually says here is uh, she says that 
As she stirred the pot and she prayed, long story short, every mouth at that table was then fed that night. Not only then, there were seven mouths, they all had dinner and they were all full, some of them even having seconds, but there were leftovers. Those leftovers then, the next morning, managed to extend to feed all four mouths that were meant to originally be fed that first night. So not only were there seven of them fed, but there were four for breakfast on the leftovers alone. I love how casually Debbie told me the story. She was like, oh yeah, you know, it, it happened. He multiplied it. I was like, what, how? <laughs> what did that look like? Like logistically, did, did it grow? Did you, you know, like what did you do? And she just said every time she took a bowl out to the table, she returned back to a pot that hadn't decreased in number. She just said there was constantly more food in the pot. Now, what I learned from Debbie's story is not actually that it was about the food that she lacked, but it was about what she had in her fridge. It wasn't about the food that she lacked, it was about what she had in her fridge. Or in other words, it's not about what we don't have. God doesn't use what we don't have. He uses whatever you have in your hand. For Debbie, it was just the 500 grams of mints, and God used what she had to perform a miracle. For the little boy in the Bible, like she prayed, God used the two fish and the five loaves, and God used what he had to perform a miracle. For Moses, oh, he only had a staff, a rod in his hand, and God used what he had to perform multiple miracles. Hey, for Adam and Darcy, God used the keys that they had in their hand to an abandoned, empty, level four building on 28 East Street in Papakura. And look what God is doing in this place, performing miracles. My question for you this morning, church, is what do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? A story that God had put on my heart at the beginning of the year was the story of Gideon. Now it's found in the book of Judges in the Bible. Um, and the book, of, uh, the book of Gideon, the story of Gideon here, um, the more I read this, the more I actually was reminded of Debbie's story, of the fact that God doesn't use what we don't have. He uses whatever is in your hand in order to perform the miracle at hand. Prior to reading the story of Gideon, all I really knew was that he, uh, it was something to do with a fleece. I was like, yeah, I remember a story sometime when I was growing up about how he put out a fleece and then it got wet. And so I was like, okay, but I didn't really know the bigger picture. So then I dived in. So follow along with me. The main scripture um, is in the sermon notes and you'll see those on the Elam app if you've got it or they'll show up behind me. Um, but when it comes to the Bible, obviously, um, the context is key here. We don't want to be pulling things out of context, right? And so let me give you a quick summary of where Gideon kind of falls in the bigger biblical narrative. The story of Gideon happens a thousand years before Jesus's time. Um, and so in that sense, Israel, who were God's chosen people, they didn't have an established monarchy. They didn't have a government that ruled over them. So then God then appointed judges at the time, uh, what the Bible calls judges. God appointed them to then rule over his people and keep the peace. Gideon was one of these judges. They were people who delivered God's people um, and led them into winning the victory, okay? Gideon was one of those judges, and he took over after Deborah. Now, after Deborah's rule, there were 40 years of peace, and then God's people kind of got a little bit restless. This is a pattern that reoccurs over and over in the Bible. They serve God, 
and then they fall from God. They serve God and then they fall from God. Um, And so at this point, they had then fallen from God and turned from him. They were worshiping other gods for seven years and then Gideon stepped in. At this point in his story, um, God had allowed the the enemy and their armies to then come in and invade their land because obviously with forfeiting God, you forfeit his protection. And so if you want to follow along with me, the scriptures should pop up on the screen behind. In Judges chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, it says, They, who are the enemies, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the eastern tribes, they camped on the land and ruined all the crops all the way to Gaza, and they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. What happens next here, I actually really love about the way that God works. God always chooses to work through the underdog. So what Gideon was doing here is actually he was hiding um, from the enemy uh, and he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Um, So the angel of the Lord, who's actually God in human form at this point in scripture, he comes and appears to Gideon. um, And this next verse here is part of their conversation. It says in Judges chapter six, verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? What happens next is what I love about how us humans work. We are extremely stubborn, (laughs) I know I am anyway, and we don't like to get pushed out of our comfort zone. Um, So a couple of things that I actually noted when I read this passage of scripture that talks about Gideon is that it says uh, different responses that he actually had to this call of God. God calls him to go and deliver him from the people, uh, deliver his people, sorry, from the Midianites. uh, And he reacts in three distinct ways. How did Gideon respond to this call of God? It says that he doubted God's plan. The passage here says, and this is part of his conversation with God. I'm getting my drama teacher on. If the Lord is with us, then why did this all happen to us? This is what he's saying to the angel of the Lord. What happened to all the wonderful things that our fathers told us that the Lord used to do? How he brought them out of Egypt? The Lord has abandoned us and left us to the mercy of the Midianites. Now we've all been here, haven't we? Where we've doubted whether or not God was real. I know that I've definitely been here at this point as well. What I love about Gideon is that he doesn't try and hide these doubts from God. Instead, he actually takes them straight to him and has this conversation and says, no, no, what are you doing, God? Where are you? Why have you left us? And then God actually responds to him with this call. He says, go in the strength that I have given you. What is Gideon's next response? He begins to list off excuses. Why he shouldn't do it, right? This sounds a little bit familiar all the time. Uh, and so he's, he starts to list off some excuses. This is the next part of his conversation. He says, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. You'd think God would know this. My clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least important member of my family. Two excuses right there. Now, this is hitting a little bit close to home. Um, I know that I have done this a million and one times where God has called me to step out of my comfort zone and I've gone, oh, but 
hey, I know this other really cool person that would actually be really good for the job, God. I'll give you their number. Um, or I'll go, oh, you know what, God? I don't think I have the particular skills to be able to do that thing that you're asking me to do. Or God, I, I can't afford, I'm a teacher. I can't afford that. And so whatever God calls you to do, it always feels a little bit uncomfortable when it's outside of your comfort zone, right? So this one really hits home with me. Um, but I love the way that God actually replies to Gideon in this moment, which I know he's replied to me multiple times. He says to him, no, no, you can do it because I will help you. You can do it because I will help you. So after doubting, after listing off all of these excuses, what does Gideon then do? He needed multiple confirmations. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Guilty. Uh, he needed multiple confirmations. The three that are listed in the Bible here, he actually says. So the first one uh, is when the angel of the Lord appears to him. He goes, okay, well, if you're God and you're calling me to do this, then prove it. Prove to me that you are the angel of the Lord. I don't quite know what he was expecting here, but he, he then went inside and he cooked an entire lamb for a meal and some unleavened bread while the angel of the Lord waited outside. He then took it to the angel of the Lord and said, there you go, give me proof, right? The angel of the Lord tells him to put the food that he just cooked on top of a rock and then just casually he struck it with a rod and then out of the rock comes an incredible burst of fire that then consumes the entire meal, right? So it ends up being left in ash and then this angel of the Lord disappears. If that were me, I would, that would be it. I would not need anything for the rest of my life. I'd be, okay, God is real. God is real and I know it. This one time and I would tell the story for the rest of my life. But Gideon actually, you'd think that would be enough to convince him. He saw that. This happened in front of his eyes. The angel disappeared and he goes, not sold. <laughs> not sold. I, I need more confirmation, God. So then he actually tests God twice because he knows how big the call is. Let me remind you really quickly of the situation that he's in. See, the Midianites have taken over their land and all of his people are dispersed. They're hiding in fear among the mountains and caves. And so Gideon's going, okay, God, if you're calling me to go and deliver my people right now from the Midianites that are outnumbered, we can't even count them and their camels, how do you expect me to do that, right? So he's going, okay, God, like I know you've shown me some real cool stuff here, but, but I'm gonna put you to the test, right? If this is really you, then I'm gonna give you two more things. And so this is where the fleece comes in. The second way that he tested God is that he pulls this fleece out and lays it outside in his paddock. And he says, okay, God, if this is really you, this is the dialogue that he has with him. He said, this is on my little next page, uh, if in the morning there is dew only on the wool, so if it's soaked, but not on the ground, then I will know that you are going to use me to rescue Israel. God then drenched the fleece that night. <clears throat> Gideon went out in the morning and he saw that the fleece was absolutely drenched. And was there a spot of water on the ground? No, not a single drop. He then picked up the fleece, he wrung it dry, and all of the water from the fleece filled an entire bowl. As if that would be enough, he then said to God, okay, here we go, I'm going to test you again. He goes, here's your final one. 
I'm going to pull the reverse card on you. He goes, okay, that might have been a lucky one. Maybe that happens often and I just didn't know it. So he goes, okay, God, do the exact opposite. Do the exact opposite, I dare you. So then he goes and puts the fleece out again and he says to God, tomorrow morning when I come out, let the ground be completely soaked and let the fleece be absolutely dry. Then God, then I will know that it is you who's calling me into battle. What happens the next morning? Gideon then goes out. Uh, to the paddock. And the way that he has this conversation with God, he said, um, this time let the wool be dry and the ground be wet. The next morning, Gideon walked out to to a soaked paddock and an extremely dry woolen fleece. He has no argument this time. And he finally comes to terms with the fact that he is going to have to accept the call of God. He eventually then, fast forward, managed to build up an army of 32,000 men. This is probably my favorite part of the entire show. In God fashion, in in classic God fashion, he throws a spanner in the works to then test Gideon's faith, right? Gideon's given him some tests. Now God's going, okay, do you trust me? So Gideon's gathered an army of 32,000 people. And then God says to him, "Mm, that's too many. That's too many. Uh, In Judges chapter 7, you'll see it in your notes, verses 2 to 3. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me, even though they were outnumbered. Now announce to your army, get this, anyone who trembles with fear may return back and leave Mount Gilead. Anyone who trembles with fear may return back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, leaving then 10,000 behind. So 10,000 remained. God actually then said to Gideon, I love the way that God works. It's hilarious. God then said to Gideon, you know what? You had 32,000. I got them down to 10,000. But you know what? That 10,000 is actually too much. I can't deliver the Midianites to your care with that 10,000. He said, that's still too many for me to give you the victory. So then uh, forget about throwing a spanner in the works with that full one. I feel like God kind of with this one just threw his entire toolkit into the works and was like, take this one. And this is what happens with the next cull that God instructs him. In Judges chapter 7, verses 5 and 7, it says, So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord said to him, separate those who lap up the water with their tongues as a dog laps. Interesting. And separate them from those who kneel down and drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men, 300 men that lapped this up, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. 300 men is what he's left with. Starts with 32,000, is left now with 300. That is just a quick maths lesson, less than 1%, less than 1% of what he originally started with. 300 men, and God's now saying to him, okay, go into battle and I will deliver you there. Not only was he ridiculously outnumbered, right? Not only was he ridiculously outnumbered, but he was also ridiculously ill equipped. There was no way that they had been able to go into battle and fight this battle, right? They didn't have swords. They didn't have shields. They didn't have armors. 
I read this passage and I went, God, seriously, how do you expect them to fight the battle? And then that's when I realized where I was going wrong. It was never actually their battle to fight in the first place. That was God's plan all along. Hence why he was culling the numbers all the way. He was going, no, no, you'll boast if you win the battle with 32,000. You'll boast if you win the battle with 10,000. There's no way you can boast if you win the battle with 300. You'll only attribute that to me right? So it was always God's plan in the first place to win the battle ahead of them. But then my question becomes, what did they win the battle with? They went into battle with what was in their hand. What was in their hand, you might ask. Let me tell you. Every man had a ram's horn trumpet, a ram's horn trumpet. Every man, one of the, all of the 300, had a clay jar, maybe like throw that one, I don't know, had a clay jar, uh, and then every man had a torch to light, a ram's horn trumpet, a clay jar, and a torch to light. This sounds like the beginning of a, like a bad joke, like th 300 men walk into a battle with a ram's horn, a clay jar, and a torch, like what are you doing, God? Um, but then it literally, uh, it, it genuinely then carries on to say this, so this is the passage here where it actually, where the battle is won. Judges chapter 7, verses 20 to 22. The three companies, meaning the three groups of 100 men, they split off. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. So they blew the trumpet, they smashed the jars, grasping the torch with their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Interesting. So they had a ram's horn trumpet that they blew. They had a clay jar that they then smashed. And then they had a torch that they had lit when they made their battle cry. After digging a bit deeper into the significance of each of these weapons, there's actually a lot more to them than meets the eye. I found this super intriguing. And so here we go. Let's take a proper look at what each of these weapons actually are. They all serve a purpose in Gideon's intimidation method. So in their right hand, they held a trumpet. The way that I see this is that it makes a significant declaration a significant declaration. In the Jewish culture, there are many different patterns that the blowing of a ram's horn um, can communicate or can declare, if you will. For example, in this particular instance, Gideon will have sounded an alarm that was more like a war cry. This is called a teruah, okay, where it has nine short blasts really fast, and that sounds the alarm for a battle, okay? So that's what they actually would have done in this instance. This would have communicated then to the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the eastern tribesmen in the valley that there were 300 tribes that were then being summoned, 300 armies that were being summoned into this battle. So what they would have seen from the valley was the fact, or not seen, what they would have heard from the valley was 300 surrounding trumpets, and they would have assumed then at that point, there are 300 armies that are being summoned. That's quite an interesting thing. Of course, they would then begin to flee. What we can learn from this is that what your declaration is in whatever battle you are facing, whether it is true or not, 
we know that theirs wasn't true. Whether it is true or not will dictate your outcome. Whatever you declare has the power to dictate the outcome of your battle. Even though they held a simple trumpet in their hand, when they then surrendered this trumpet into the Lord's hand, it became a weapon. The next thing that we can look at is that in their left hand, they held a clay jar. The way that I see this significance of this is that it was a significant breaking the initial purpose, so it had two purposes here, the clay jar. Uh, the initial purpose of it was to cover the light from the torches, so not to give away their presence in the valley. As they traveled up to the edges of the camps, they didn't want to give away, obviously, the fact that the torch was lit. So then the clay jar served the purpose of covering that as they walked up. Once it then served that purpose, it became more of a hindrance rather than a help. So what they did with the clay jar is they smashed it. Its second purpose was to intimidate. The smashing sound in the middle of the night caused a confusion that then down in the valleys, they went, what is going on? These guys clearly have weapons. Did they have weapons? Apart from a clay jar, a ram's horn, and um, a lamp to light? Nope, not really. But that's the... Um, intimidation method that Gideon then confused them with. So they smashed these jars and then that intimidated the people. What we learn here is that sometimes what once served us well may need to be left behind in order to win your victory. I'll say that one more time. That's really important. What we learn here is that sometimes what once served us well may need to be left behind in order to win the victory. Just like it served them well in the purpose of hiding the flame, it needed to be left behind and smashed in order to move into the victory. Even though they held a simple clay jar in their hand, when they surrendered that clay jar into the Lord's hand, it did become their weapon. Along with the jar in their left hand, they also held this torch. The way I see the torch is a significant light that it brought. What followed this teruah, the war trumpet, what followed the teruah and the smashing sound of clay was then 300 torches being lit and held up and declared in battle. The purpose of this then from the valley is that they looked up and they saw that they were surrounded. It was an actual uh, visual cue to the fact that what they were hearing, the sounds that they were hearing and the crashing, that they were actually looking up into the valley and going, oh, there's lights everywhere. We are surrounded. We are in trouble. And so uh, in the Old Testament, you'll also see that fire always represented where the presence of the Lord dwelt. And so whether or not that fire appeared in the form of a burning bush, whether or not the fire appeared in the form of the middle of a furnace, or whether or not the fire appeared in the middle of the desert leading the Israelite people, the fire in the Old Testament always uh, described where the presence of the Lord was. So actually, when the people in the valley looked up and saw that they were surrounded by fire, that was confirmation to them that Gideon had the Lord on his side. That's huge. And that was part of the method. What we learn from this is that no matter how dark your midnight may be in your battle, know that God can use even the smallest of lights. Even though they held a simple torch in their hand, when they then surrendered that to God, this became their weapon. The most powerful thing we can actually do when we read scripture is put ourselves 
in their shoes, right? In the shoes of whatever is going on in that chapter. And so we're actually going to give that a go right now. You're probably like, how do we do that? It was midnight. You're all camping out here till midnight, and we're going to try it. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, we're actually going to give this a quick go. Um, and I've got a couple of things that will give you a real experience. Um, let's keep in mind that Gideon's army of 300, right? They went up to the top of the valley at midnight. So regardless of who they were up against, they were definitely unprepared because they were probably sleeping. The entire experience would have felt a little something like this. And to think that was only one. Times that by 300, and you would have then had a more accurate picture of what had surrounded them in the valley. It's quite incredible to try and actually wrap your head around what Gideon's men had had to go through that night. The fact that they didn't lift a single sword in battle, or they didn't even descend into the valley in order to win their victory. The men were actually, the Spirit of the Lord descended upon them, and they turned on each other with their swords and essentially had the victory handed to them on a silver platter without even lifting an arm. Can I remind you, church and band, you guys can come and join me now, that there is no limit to what God can do. All he requires of you is what you have in your hand. You saw the way that God used all of these different things. They weren't weapons, but when they were handed into the power of God, he actually turned them into weapons and made the Midianites and the Amalekites run. This is how we fight our battles by surrendering what we have to God and by trusting that he's actually gone before us to win the victory in this. Now, I've asked Nyla and Axton to do something a little bit different here. They're actually going to sing you guys a song. Instead of joining in with this part, um, I want them to sing it for you. The lyrics of this are powerful, and it's almost as if it were written with the story of Gideon in mind. They make this declaration, this is how I fight my battles. And then later on in the song it says, it may look like I'm surrounded, just like in the story, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I fight my battles, and then it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. My prayer for you is that these words will become your declaration in whatever season you are fighting a battle in this morning. So as they sing this over us, church, can we just take a moment to let that sink in? This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. 
is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. fight our battles. Number one, by making a significant declaration. Number two, by making a significant breaking. And then number three, by allowing a significant light. You see, everything in the Old Testament where the book of Judges was is a reflection or a foreshadowing of what is to come in the New Testament when Jesus dies on the cross for us. And so in that sense, what was Jesus's declaration over, his, uh, over the cross where he hung? It was actually his final words where he declared, it is finished. That is a powerful declaration. You need to do nothing else than say yes to Him. It is finished was the declaration that He ended on. What was the powerful breaking when Jesus then hung on the cross and took His final breath? The curtain that was in the temple, it separated the presence of God from God's people. That actually broke in half. When he took his final breath, it separated in half and then meant it signified for us that we have constant access into the presence of God. We don't need to go through priests. We don't need to go through rituals. We have access to the presence of God because that was broken when he hung on the cross for you. And the significant light, it is very clear that all throughout scripture, Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. And so in the fact, uh, in the way that that the fire is a part of His light. The fire in the Old Testament represented the presence of God. Let His fire now lead you. Let His fire be the light of the world that lives inside of you, that can actually go ahead of you into this battle and fight it for you. So what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna sing that one more time if that's all right. And I'm gonna invite you guys, church, just to jump up and join in with us. Would you make this your battle cry? Would you sing these lyrics? This is how I fight my battle. It may feel like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Would you join us, church? <laughs> 